Richard, it's a it's such a pleasure to have you on Project Unity for a conversation. For people that don't know this, you were actually one of the first points of contact that I was fortunate enough to gain, and this was uh, this was actually primarily due to my interest in the Admiral Wilson leaks at the time. And it was it was such a strange thing for me to go from listening to you on YouTube to having an, an off record phone call, and I, I remember that phone call quite clearly actually because at that time. I actually felt a little out of my depth. I had recently got into contact with someone in the US intelligence community who I'm still in contact with today. Uh, some people will now know him by the name of Holden. And it was uh, at this time that I was actually seeking you out for advice because I wasn't sure of the best approach. And I was, I was very grateful for your support. And then later down the line, you were gracious enough to invite me on to the Richard Dolan show. And, and that was a fantastic experience for me. So I'm, I'm happy to now be in a position myself where I can welcome you onto my platform. Jay, I'm so happy to be here with you. I've admired the work you do since you've been doing it. And um, as I just mentioned before we went on, I've, I always appreciate the amount of preparation that you put into your interviews before you conduct them. And um, I think that really does credit to not just yourself, but to our whole UFO community. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. And I'll tell you what, I really appreciated your most recent uploads, especially the video titled Disclosure in a Divided World, because I feel there is a necessity to talk about some of the overarching changes that are occurring across the globe. And I, you know, I really do appreciate your measured approach to issues like globalization, because we're absolutely in the midst of profound changes on a, on a geosocial, economic, political scale. And, and the points that you touched on the most was that this current state of affairs can't go on forever, that something is going to have to give. And I agree completely. It, it feels to me as if you know, we're at a major point within the human story and the, the next five to 10 years might define our indefinite futures. And, and I have to admit, I do look at this with a real measure of optimism that's only counteracted by uh, like a, a fear that the necessity for positive change might manifest itself in a series of what could initially be perceived to be negative, but in the long run, necessary experiences in order for us to attain a new freedom, a new, a new way of living and, and understanding of reality. And I just wanted to kick this off by asking if you're optimistic about the future of humanity, but maybe concerned about the journey it might take to reach a positive outcome. Well, what a great question. I don't know. I don't know how optimistic I am or how pessimistic I am at times. I mean, it's a matter of perspective. In other words, for me, the most important thing about making life worthwhile for the human species is, do we have a reasonable measure of genuine freedom mm. in our lives that can make thinking people happy? Maybe that's one way to put it. And when I look at it on that measure, at least in the immediate term, that is like my lifetime and maybe the next lifetime to come, I'm not optimistic. Because what I see is a, a global system coming into place very rapidly, <clears throat> I mean very rapidly, that is designed to essentially digitize and commodify every single human being and, and have them monitored in a 24-7 manner with the uh, a whole array of technologies that are coming online to do that. So not just watching you through your computer and your phone, which yes, but also watching you out, out in public in the streets with facial and voice recognition. And, and now, you know, uh, people have been talking about the Chinese social credit type of system by which citizens of that country are measured according to their behavior and that that behavior, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, 
will dictate how successful they're going to be in society in general, according to the measurements imposed by the Chinese Communist Party. So that's that's there. And, you know, I look at the rest of the world and I think I see every major Western government looking at that thinking, we want some of that. And I, I think maybe we're about a decade behind the Chinese in a full-blown implementation of, of a similar kind of system. I mean, there'll always be differences and variations, but we're all, already seeing it, in my opinion, unofficially through corporate-owned social media. But I think the next step will be seeing it through actual government mandates and, and laws. And I, I fear that. I think that's a, a dangerous, very dangerous step for humanity to move into. And frankly, I have a hard time seeing a way to get around that. The, the power on that side is so overwhelming, so strong. And the economic and military motivations for creating this type of system are overwhelming as well. So, for example, to create 5G technology to implement that, <clears throat> you know, that has definite military and economic implications that mm -hmm. nations, I mean, from a power point of view, would be absolute fools not to implement. If the Chinese military is going to be implementing 5G throughout their entire military system, for example, the United States clearly is going to want to do the same. And, and so you've got a kind of technological arms race driven on that basis alone. And then there's the entire economic factor, which is equally uh, significant. So all of these things are driving uh, 5G. And 5G is important because that is, that's kind of like the bones of the new system. That's the method by which very advanced algorithms will be able to flow very rapidly uh, through so-called smart devices that once the 5G is in place, smart devices are gonna be invented left and right to accommodate, uh, to be able to work with 5G. And you're just gonna have a, a system of sensors that are gonna monitor, I mean, conceivably every single relevant thing about our lives. So that I don't like because you can't have freedom without at least a modicum of privacy. They, they don't go together. And so in the immediate term to answer this question of yours, I'm not optimistic. I think that we're moving into a very, a, we're regressing to the way the world was before the industrial revolution in which small communities were all monitored ideologically you know, by local churches and the government. People were not allowed to express dissenting opinions. I mean, they often were killed for doing that. And I see, you know, the outbirth, the outgrowth of freedom that we had from the industrial revolution, I think is in, in danger of being negated. So that's the near term. For the long term, one thing I remind myself is that people have a way of adapting to all kinds of craziness in their world. And as, as much as I personally would not like it, I can imagine future generations growing up with it thinking, well, this is the normal way and we're okay with it. You know, here we are in the 21st century and there were elements of human society a hundred plus years ago that were on the face of it, probably more free than we have today. And yet I think most people wouldn't want to go back, wouldn't want to live in those times. Some would, but many wouldn't. And similarly, I think, Folks of the future might just look back on our time thinking, no, we like it better where we are now. I can't imagine that from my belief system in psychology. I just can't fathom how I would personally like it, but I can imagine that people in the future would find a way of dealing with it. But, you know, keep in mind, 
as I see it, it's essentially converting humanity into one giant anthill where we're under collectively with great, great, great uh, power, technologically, militarily, and uh, in terms of communication and things like that. But on the individual basis, I think people are very likely to be looking at much less individual autonomy in every way that I can look at it. So I, you know, I'm not happy when I look at where it's going, but I also unfortunately don't see an easy way around uh, dealing with that eventuality. Well, the, the, uh, the anarchist in me would say that you, you can't have a revolution without an empire. You know, you've got to have something to fight against for there to be a fight at all. And so mm-hmm. maybe we, we will end up, you know, rallying against this type of control state that is definitely coming in through, like you said, the, uh, the kind of structures of big technology and, and mass surveillance. Would, would, do you think that people overall are too complacent? There's too much passivity when it comes to how these policies and changes are slowly creeping in? Yeah, but I'm not blaming people for that. People react to the, the larger structure of the society that they live within. And if mm, there's just not yeah. room for them to, you know, I'm going to give you an example. Um, I remember years ago, I had a conversation with a, a man. This is when I was, uh, I spent a lot of my life writing professional resumes for job seekers. Oh, nice. Some, some people know about this, some don't. I did it for 20 years, including, you know, many years when I was actively writing books on UFOs. I don't do it anymore. But over that period of time, I met with, uh, I estimate, maybe 10,000 different job seekers. I sat down one-on-one and made them look beautiful for their next job. But I remember talking with one man. This is like in 19, early 90s, long time ago. And he had worked uh, for a local Rochester, New York corporation back in the 60s. And he said to me, yeah, I never needed resumes back then. Back then, I would just quit a job, and then I would start looking for another job, and I would usually find one the next day or the next day <laughs> that week. And I thought, wow, man, you're living in a completely different reality now. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but the point is that the freedom he had, I mean, he was in a job market, you know, the construction boom greater than anything since the building of the pyramids, maybe there was always work. And in that kind of a situation, when there's always work, there's always opportunity, people have the ability to resist much more effectively. And that's why you had in the 1960s, for example, people could turn on, tune in, drop out. They could take two years off, three years off, go up to California, drop acid, and then come back and get a job. And a job that would actually support them and their family. And it would be a decent job, even without a college education. So that is freedom. And that allowed for people at that time very actively to have the confidence to fight the system because they knew that there would be a life for them somehow. And you fast forward to today, and that just does not exist. There is absolutely no economic uh, freedom and security for people to to fall back on. And that that causes people to get really cautious and frightened. And you see it reflected in the culture. You know, you see, um, we, we absolutely have a cult. You compare, and this is not to say one is better than the other, but you compare the young generation of today with the young generation of the 1960s and 70s. And there is, there are similarities, but there's a lot of differences. And one being the confidence that existed 50 years ago is just, it doesn't exist now. Yeah. And so you see a, a very much of a, 
a closing off of a lot of expression, a lot of, there's just not that confidence anymore. And I think people are willing to, to take a lot more than they took 50 years ago. Yeah. You know, I think, um, I do think as much as it's, it's well, it's a gift and a curse really, because I do think that social media has played a large role in that uh, dissolution of, of confidence. I mean, I remember, I can't remember, I don't know if it was the recent video that you did, but I remember you just saying that people are less inclined to look other people in the eye anymore. And I tell you, it's true. And I, I notice it more with my generation than older generations, you know, even just walking down the street, if I'm walking down the street and there's someone coming towards me who's, you know, in their forties, fifties plus, they'll usually look at me in the eye and nod. Whereas a, a kid my age or someone younger is head to the floor, doesn't really want to look at you. And mm. is probably staring at a mobile phone, talking to someone else. And it's just, you know, I, I can, I can see how you would, uh, how, how you would notice this change. And I do think, and you know, my mom, who's a, a school teacher, and she's noticed the same thing, especially with attention span and the ability to digest large volumes of information, um, because a lot of these children and a lot of these kids, they're so used to fast transitory information coming through social media platforms that they, they quite literally can't focus their brains in the same way as we used to be able to. Yes, exactly. And, you know, think it's like the little pieces of humanity being torn out of us. When you look at how human beings have evolved to live, we are designed to use our eyeballs and we're designed to read each other's faces. Mm -hmm. That, according to evolutionary biologists, is, is one of the key reasons that our brains developed to be as large and sophisticated as they have been. In other words, in order to read other people. Right, right. Not, not to read even the rest of the world, but just to read the complexities of other people. So we, we're designed to understand eye contact and body language and <clears throat> you know all of these other subtle but but very important cues physical cues that we give each other so that we can understand and and it's been a, a, f a phenomenal frightening development for me personally I'm, and i'm 58 years old now to see the rapid decline of that fundamental skill that human beings we are designed to have we're we're biological creatures we're phys we're animals we are animals in the animal kingdom yeah and we're, we're designed to interact that way. And it's just something that we're taking away from ourselves. A lot of it is it's smart devices. And a lot of it is uh, the this larger structural formation of our society in general, the way kids are being raised. And again, this is not to say, oh, bad job parents, but kids are often in um, smaller families. So they're not interacting with other kids. And you find that with young people, uh, playtime is so rigorously monitored now. I think that there are probably 10-year-old kids living today who very possibly may not have had as much as a couple of hours of their entire life of truly unstructured, free interaction with other kids where there's no right. other adults around. And when I think about that, that just astonishes me. I grew up, I was one of those so-called free-range kids. <laughs> I would leave the house, my mom would say, get the hell out of here, go play. And I would play for hours and hours, often miles away from my house. I'm nine, 10 years old on my bike. And I would just go, go somewhere, play, base, play baseball or uh, get into fights or deal with other kids all away from the eyes of my parents. And that was normal. And that forces kids to learn how to interact, to learn how to have conflict resolution, learn how to deal with conflict, learn how to figure out your own problems. And this is a, 
a very, I mean, we're getting away from our topic of UFOs here. No, that's but, fine. We'll jump into that in a second. Sure. But, but it's, to me, it's a, a really important thing that we're taking away from the psychological development of, of young people. And it cannot be good for them as they mature into adults, because I think what it does is it raises very brittle human beings who don't know fully how to interact with their fellow human beings. And again, that's one of our fundamental skills and, and strengths as a species is our ability to interact with each other. And we're, you know, I mean, not everyone in the world is like this, but increasingly you see more and more people being raised like this and becoming like that. So yes, I, I don't like it. I wish that, uh, and I hope that somehow we can find a way to overcome that. Maybe it's possible, but I'm not seeing it right now. Well, there's no way of avoiding the obvious projection of, um, you know, technological superiority and, and, and that being kind of the main driver for uh, evolution in humanity right now is, is technolo technological innovation. But it does seem to me that change can only be actioned by a catalyst. And so global change will likely require global catalysts. And this is why I believe that the UFO issue could help in unifying people, but only if it's handled in the correct way. And, and this is why I see you as such an important voice within the field, because you take, you know, you take a professional and measured approach to the conversation that's more palatable to people outside of the UFO community. And ultimately, that is what we're trying to do, right? Get this conversation out of a right. very small niche group of interested people and, and into a global conversation. Yes, I, absolutely. And, and I think you're exactly right in describing the UFO phenomenon or UFO problem as one of maybe a handful mm. of potential themes that could maybe crack open or if we're so lucky, derail some of the worst aspects of what we're looking at. And, you know, over a decade ago, I wrote a co-authored a book on this theme called AD After Disclosure, in which my co-author and I tried to game plan the scenario out as to first, how might UFO secrecy ever be ended? That was interesting. And then secondly, and mostly, if it were to end, what next? How would it, how would it transform our world? And what, you know, I saw then, and I still see potentially now, is that a genuine opening of the full implications of the UFO phenomenon for our society at large. Like in other words, if the conversation that researchers have been having for years and we all are understanding, if that were somehow to be translated to the rest of the world, right? if they were to hear the things that we believe that we know, what would happen? And what I thought is there would be probably some kind of avalanche effect so that you know, if, if, a, if a particular sighting got enough traction or if there was a leak from some important official or a leak of a document or that type of thing. So if that were to come out and make it game over for the UFO cover-up, at least in it, you know, people would realize, oh my God, there's actually UFOs real and there's a cover-up. Mm -hmm. um, my thought was that there could be this avalanche of other questions like, okay, so it's real. Does that mean encounters and abductions with these other beings are real? Does it mean that you have underground bases where you're studying alien tech? Is that real? Is it real that you've had encounters yourselves with these beings and are they friend or foe? And by the way, what other secrets have you been keeping from us? And by the way, how have you been able to keep this secret from us through the 
controlled media outlets, through the political institutions, through even academia and science. Mm -hmm. Like that, my reasoning was that this would be an avalanche of questions that people would want to ask, and it would be a very a uncomfortable situation for those people who've had the secret to start with, but B, a potentially liberating moment in which the world could shine light on these, you know, hitherto very dark, unknown parts of our world. And that would be all to the better because we, we need that truth out. So that was what I had been hoping for. And, and the other thing that I would add is, for me personally, I was hoping that it would breed or, or lead to a reform rather than a genuine revolution, mainly because I'm afraid of revolutions. I think mm. they are bloody and people get killed and there's a lot of injustice. And I'm not sure that at least in the immediate aftermath, we're better off than we were before. Right. Sometimes we are, but, but there's a cost to be paid for. I mean, serious revolution means something's happening in your neighborhood where people yeah, are getting absolutely. killed. Yeah. And I'm not a fan of that. So what I had hoped is that a genuine disclosure, let's call it that, would lead to significant reform of democratic systems that, in my view anyway, I mean, I like the idea that we have these democratic institutions. They're not perfect, but nothing is perfect. I mean, nothing is perfect. So I thought, let's make <clears throat> our systems work the way we designed them to work. That would be much better than throwing it all out and starting something new because the new part is what would actually terrify me because I don't think the new would be better. Well, you know, I, I think I think we are probably still teetering on that potentiality for a domino effect to occur. And, you know, for, for us as researchers and, and especially for people like yourself who've been embedded in this discussion for, you know, for years, it it can seem like obviously the pace is is a snail's pace. But I think one problem and, it, you know, it does come down to the, the heavy stigmatization because, you know, one problem with sensible discourse on the UFO issue is the fact that so much of it is so abstract. You know, it's hard to differentiate between fact and fiction. And, and then some areas of this issue go so much deeper than many are prepared to go themselves, especially when you tie the phenomenon into theology and ancient civilizations, as well as consciousness as well, the issue around human consciousness and its connection to the phenomena. You know, these are very controversial talking points, but um, I have to admit my own, my own personal journey has led me to believe, especially recently, that by examining our ancient past, we may get a better idea of what this phenomenon represents. And I know that in your latest book, Alien Agendas, which we're definitely going to get into in a little bit, you touch mm -hmm. on prehistory events and the influences upon ancient civilizations. So as a historian, um, do you see merit in observing past teachings in order to understand present circumstances, but both in the general sense and also when attempting to understand the phenomenon? Wow, what that's an amazing question. So you mean pa you. past teachings in terms of like philosophy, spirituality, right, and that right. sort of thing? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the answer is yes, I do. I think it's important because one thing that has come to me in looking at the the contemporary UFO phenomenon of the last you know seventy plus years is that there's a definite effect on human consciousness in a variety of ways. So one way is that there is an, an enormous number of claims by ordinary witnesses of some kind of telepathic communication with these beings or objects. And that comes through again and again. So in other words, like they're, they are not only able to somehow direct their thoughts at people, and that's a weird thing. Like for someone who's listening to this, who's a, <clears throat> a strict materialist scientific kind of a person, I would just advise them to just hold your horses here 
before you judge because in the in the research and the, the literature on this this is an overwhelming number of cases where this has happened so mm-hmm. something i think is going on and it means not only that they have the ability to direct thoughts to our consciousness but that we have the ability to receive it somehow now maybe we're only receiving it because they put implants into us and they're able to to do it technologically but i I suspect that there's much more to it than that. So our consciousness is an important part of what's going on here in our interactions with them. And the other thing that I will add here is that, this is all anecdotal, but I think it's true. I've heard countless um, stories from individuals, many I know very well, who've said to me the following. I started meditating very seriously and you know x weeks or months later i had this incredible experience and i hear this all the time so there's a couple of things that come to mind it's one so are you meditating and are you just your is your mind doing that to you or are you somehow open by disciplining your thoughts and your the structure of your mind in a certain way are you getting the interest of those beings who notice you you know they've got an entire planet of people to look at and most people don't do that sort of mental discipline right so like a strong it would be likely yeah it might, might be that they're just interested in those people they're like ah here's someone let's take a look so there's so spiritual practices and a high level of attention to one's consciousness like that's important and and it and it tells us more probably about ourselves than it does about them these other beings but yes i i agree like under i'm not sure if i'm answering your question fully by the way so oh, i'm, I'm, I'm enjoying your response don't worry yeah so i think that our uh a full awareness of of what we are and of our consciousness and it sounds really um can sound vague but i think that that would be that's something that's very important for us and honestly over the last century or more really during the industrial period i I think people have lost or losing that ability we're not really we're not in a quiet space anymore not nearly as much and and when you're not in a quiet space you really can't be uh able not only to think your own individual thoughts because you really need peace and quiet to do that but also to be able to be open. You know, if you believe that there are, as a kind of ESP that we all have, we talk about, I talk about remote viewing quite a bit, for example, and something I've been interested in for 20 years. I think that we do have this capability and it's one that I think it's to our benefit to explore that and to strengthen it. I'm not sure if I fully answered your question, no, Jay. <laughs> well, yes, it, you gave a good answer, but all I was, uh, you know, I'll I'll turn it back around again to um, the historian aspect of this is whether or not you believe that we can, you know, apply some of the ancient knowledges to present day, even in a general sense, as well as being, uh, you know, attributable to the phenomenon. Is is there something that we can learn? For example, um, have you spent much time at all studying the Hermetic philosophies? Very little bit. Um, very little bit, mostly through uh, Manley Hall's excellent book, The Secret Teachings of the Ages. Right. And I have actually just of late been 
along with my UFO research, I've been exploring a lot of ancient literature. And I just reread the entire contemporary translation of the Epic of Gilgamesh, which oh, nice. my mind, uh, as well as uh, Aeschylus's Orsaya trilogy, which is a kind of genius level writing. And I'm similar. I'm simultaneously doing uh, readings of Homer's Iliad, a contemporary oh, wow, translation. Look at you. <laughs> and at the same time, I'm actually reading the old books of the Old Testament. As Bloody hell, Richard. I'm going through Exodus. I, I, I alternate between the Iliad and uh, Exodus these days. Yeah. And they're each, they each give me um, very interesting insights into ancient psychology. Uh, all of those four books I mentioned. Um, I've actually just, this is a personal thing here, but I've been interesting in, interested in exploring, I guess what I can call the grammar of thought. Mm of ancient people, like how, you know, everything to their translation is difficult to know exactly, but these are, I think these are true and accurate translations as much as we can get. And you really see that people living many thousands of years ago um, formulated their thoughts differently than we do, not just in this, the grammatical structure of, of a sentence, but also <clears throat> maybe more importantly, in the things that were important for them to notice. Um, so for example, you know, in the ancient literature, everyone's, uh, men are described as son of this, son of that. Right. Like your, your, your father was very, very, very important. Um, that's interesting to me. The um, ideas of the way that they wrote about the natural world. Similarly, I just found very, very interesting and, um, I don't know if I'm getting a bit off track. I guess I'm, I'm looking at these and just appreciating the, the radical differences in how ancient people often formulated their ideas about how the world was and what was important about the world. So translate that into your question. One of the things that, you know, ancient people took for granted was that the gods or spirits were around them 24 seven. Right. There was, there was no place in the ancient world where you were away from the gods. And it was always the gods plural well, until you get to the, the old Testament. But <clears throat> this idea that the entire earth was animated by divinities and spirits. In other words, what those people felt in their bones was that they were not really running the world. There were powers beyond them that they had to answer to. Some of those powers might be looking out for them and some of those powers were not looking out for them. That was a very important thing that ancient people recognized about the world is that some of those gods, you better stay away from them. <laughs> so it was a world in which the gods dominated almost every facet of their thought in, in so many ways, very different from how we are today. And one of the things that I've just sort of occasionally pondered on is how, you know, if we ever get to a point in which we recognize that there are aliens here, would and, and, and therefore that we are not the top dogs on this planet, we're not at the apex. You know, this is, this is only a new idea that people have had, humans have had, once they started throwing religion away, basically pushing that aside, at least in the Western world, human beings became the be all and end all. 
And I sometimes have wondered, with an acknowledgement of these, of others who are here way beyond us in certain ways, will we go back to a kind of understanding that the ancients had, that they're in a world dominated by friendly and malevolent gods? Just an interesting thought. Well, no, and I agree with you. And I think that, you know, it it comes back to this idea that I've been looking at a little bit recently of... um, of how we as a, as a species may have been reset quite a few times and our mm-hmm. memory and our understanding of, uh, of, of true ancient history might be shifted. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll borrow from uh, Plato because it's, it's like what was said to Solon, the great Greek lawmaker mm-hmm. by the ancient Egyptian priests when he travelled to the city of Sais. Solon wanted to pontificate on the teachings of antiquity and, and he was told by one of the priests Solon, oh Solon, you Hellenes are nothing but children, and there <laughs> exactly. is not an old man among you. You know, and right. it, it just makes right. me think about the uh, well, especially the idea of cataclysms, because it does go on to say, you know, that the priests told him that there have been many cataclysms, many resets of our culture, and you know, bringing this into the UFO issue, perhaps it's not so outlandish to imagine that some of the more human-looking ETs are actually old Earth descendants from previously advanced civilizations. Yeah, that's entirely possible. I've been looking, that's another thing I've looked into just in the last few months, actually, is uh, really trying to get a handle on genuine human prehistory. Right. And um, so for me, I, I take my time with these things. So I, I always start with what is the conventional academic assessment of human prehistory? And I'm still actually exploring that. I'm reading a couple of very detailed books on that matter very up-to-date books, to, to see, like, is there, <clears throat> excuse me, is there a, a big enough hole in our ancient history, in our prehistory, that would allow for a highly advanced human civilization to rise and fall that, that we don't know about? And I, I've asked myself this question for many, many years, and, and just recently I thought I need to revisit what professional archaeologists and prehistorians have to say about this. doesn't mean that they're right, but I think it, it's incumbent upon me to know very well what they believe and why they believe it. And so I'm, I'm in that. Then I'll, I'll, go back to, I'll go back to Graham Hancock and I'll go back to some of the other alternative theorists because um, I want to I have a full understanding of the, the actual complexities of their argument. But for right now, when I look at the conventional side of it, I'm not yet seeing an opening for an exceptionally advanced society, um, at least in terms of archaeological evidence. It doesn't mean it isn't there. You know, sea levels have risen dramatically uh, at the end of what's called the Younger Dryas. That was right, you know, right. 12,000 years ago. And, and a lot of those are early human settlements, especially the ones that we know existed along uh, the southern coast of um, Western Asia, going to India and that type of thing. Those there were very ancient human settlements there, and they're just they're underwater now, so we don't really know all of what was going on there. But in terms of evidence that we do have archaeological, I don't see. I'm not aware of any evidence that shows we were at this ultra advanced like Atlantis type of uh, situation you know, 10,000 years ago or more. Now there is 
Gobekli Tepe. I was about to jump in with that. <laughs> yes, absolutely, absolutely. It, and, you know, in, in southern Turkey, and it's an amazing site. It's an amazing site and something that we didn't know about until the 1990s. And, and that was only when we discovered it. And there's still a lot to be learned about it. So Gobekli Tepe is more than 10,000 years old. I think it's uh, it's contemporary with the, the beginning, the, the end of the Younger Dryas, so yeah. maybe 12,000 years ago. And the thing about Gobekli Tepe is it should not exist by any, any uh, measurement that I can think of, but yet it does. In other yeah. words, you've got this very advanced stone temple, series of stone temples, basically, that... Like Which I they're still myself, excavating to, they don't know the full mm -hmm. size of it yet either. That's right. And it's in a dangerous part of the world right now. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of uh, um, like ISIS and, uh, mm -hmm. and, and warfare going on there. So I don't know how active the excavations are happening right now, but, um, but there, there's not a good, there's not a, a full or good theory as to how and why, especially how that was built with the, the status of human civilization mm -hmm. as it, you know, this is before we developed agriculture. Yeah, this, this is, is hunt, hunter developed... gatherers, you know, from the archaeological right. finds. Now, what, what I have learned in uh, my recent readings on this is that we talk about hunter gatherers, but all, not all hunting gathering societies were exactly the same. So they weren't all in necessarily in small bands. As we got closer and closer to the agricultural revolution, uh, you do find people living in larger groups. Maybe we could even call them tribes at this point, um, or clans. Uh, not just not just small families living on their own. So there were larger communities that were existing, and and those communities we actually do know were aware of each other, and there was trade going on. There was some communication going on. So there would be, you know, you could expect like an annual festival where people would gather. Uh, for their activities. And and the best theory I've heard about Gobekli Tepe is that it was constructed as as that type of a meeting place uh, for like ritualistic annual gatherings that would happen. But I, I don't think we know for sure. But the, it still begs the question, how in God's name do you organize enough people mm -hmm. to get the numbers in? And by the way, the stonework there is phenomenal pretty good yeah it's yeah. not at the level of what you get with uh the pyramid which that's another thing that just is mind-blowing to me but it's still at a very advanced level and uh so no i i agree that there's there's a lot that we still need to uncover and i still generally believe that there's there are significant holes in our ancient history that can give us clues about that and and that might indicate a a much more advanced level of society than was supposed to have existed. But whether it was something like uh, an Atlantis, let's say, type of a thing, or or whether one could rely on the knowledge of the Egyptian priests talking to Solon is another question. I, I, don't, I don't believe that ancient people in general had a very good understanding of their own history. Now, certainly the Greeks did not. Uh, the question is, did the Egyptians and unfortunately, you know, a lot of those records are just gone. You know, the yeah. burning of the library of Alexandria and things like yeah, that. I mean, yeah, exactly. Absolutely. So, so much of what was known and recorded is just gone to us, and we'll probably never get it back. 
but I don't, I don't see an easy way for the Egyptian priests to really have genuine knowledge going back thousands upon thousands of years. I just don't see how they would have had that unless, unless they were part of a, and this may be what you're getting at, an esoteric tradition that um, somehow would have passed this knowledge on to them. I just don't know how that would have worked, but maybe it happened. Maybe that is the case. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's speculation, but there is always that possibility. And uh, I just find it to be such a fascinating period of time, especially ancient Egypt. And like I said, I'm, I'm kind of, I've recently ordered a bunch of different uh, hermetic texts and books, and I'm planning to awesome. to really dig into that. But um, I'll tell you, it is fascinating. Um, and yeah. But, you know, we're dealing, just to kind of bring this into the UFOs again, we're dealing with such intense subject matter, you know, when it comes to the phenomenon. And definitely it requires a multidisciplinary effort in order to tackle it. And, I, you know, I, I do my best to present the UFO conversation in a professional manner. But when it comes to the more abstract, uh, esoteric discussions, for example, the consciousness connection, I, I can't forget or set aside the the strange synchronistic and spiritual journey really that led me to this subject personally. And mm -hmm. I don't, I, you know, I don't care what people think about me for saying things like this because I know in my heart that it's true. I absolutely feel I was, um, for lack of a better word, guided into this subject due to me asking the universe for an opportunity to do something in this world. You know, before I was, uh, you know, before I was embedded into this subject, I was relatively lost and didn't really know what to think about things. And, and then suddenly I was, I was put into a, an area of research that's really helped in solidifying who I feel I am and what I know about things. And, you know, I can't let go of the profound journey that caused me to arrive at the UFO issue. And with that being said, I honestly do think that the nuts and bolts area of study is merely the tip of an iceberg that's so deeply embedded into the human story, so entrenched in our... Mm -hmm. Um, our theological and philosophical architecture. And I, I do believe that some aspect of this is about the evolution of humanity. And I suppose that's why I do have hope for the future. Do you think that we're possibly being prepared by another force, another intelligence prepared for uh, like a shift in evolution? Uh, I want to, I will answer that, but I first want to tack on to what you said just uh, a moment before, which I, I think that I fully agree with, which is that, you know, what you did in getting yourself into this area of study, um, you're saying really came about, I think directly as a result of your conscious meditative efforts. Pretty much. To do so, yeah. And I, I think that that's exactly what did happen. And I don't think it just happened because you entrained your mind to put yourself there. I mean, maybe partly yes, but I actually, uh, like you, I have come to believe that you know, there's, well, there's non-locality. In other words, there are elements of our consciousness that somehow, and I don't have the physics of this, I don't know how it actually works in terms of physics, but that somehow our consciousness does have this ability to, uh, lack of a better word, tap into something mm. that's larger than us, beyond us. And furthermore, were you guided? I'm willing to say, I mean, I don't have direct knowledge, but I'm willing to say, yes, you probably were guided as I think I was probably guided. Yeah. I think that there, you know, I've come to believe that there is, sometimes I call it a meta intelligence, something that is beyond the intelligence of, um, that we normally understand. And that is beyond or outside. It's non-local. 
and somehow it's real. This is what people do when they pray, right? And this mm. is when when one meditates and you try to get insights, are they coming from the recesses of your mind, which yes, okay, but are they coming from beyond? And it's a fair question. And I I can't say that I know, but I'm absolutely open to the fact that it's coming from outside. So yes, to what you're saying. Now, to your question is of, um, are we being guided? Yeah. I would say the answer probably is yes. Now, we may be guided in ways that are good or ways that we may look at and think, no, I don't really like the way you're guiding me. So let me go into that. Where we, this, I don't want to jump in, but this is an important theme of my last book, The Alien Agendas, and I, I might as well just get into it here. Yeah, please. I have come to believe that the visitation from these, I call them others sometimes, that we're experiencing now, I think is at a much higher level than it's ever been in our recorded history. It's not that we've not been observed for thousands of years, I think we have, but I also believe that most of that observation appears to have been at a fairly low level where I don't think we were uh, at least culturally this is my opinion right now. I don't think that we were overtly interfered with on a cultural level. I could mm. be wrong. You could say, that, you know, the great religious uh, avatars and leaders of the past, whether Buddha or Jesus, Muhammad, were aliens somehow acting through humanity. But I'm not of that opinion. Um, and when I look at the the uh, history of interaction of our species with potential alien candidates. There are, there are some out there that I look at and I think that's very interesting, but I don't know of a large number of them. There's, they're, they're out there. But what we have in the last 100 years is an overwhelming number of genuinely good and baffling UFO reports and also people attesting to having encounters with these beings. So, and that's gone way up also. Now, partly because we just have more people, we've spread all over the globe. We have way better capabilities of detecting them. You know, we're in the air ourselves, we have electronics. So there's all of that to account for. But, but I think there's a very powerful case to say that they're here in much greater numbers. And I believe the reason for that is very simple. It's because we have, we're in the midst of a massive transformation of our entire society, our civilization, and, and very likely our species. So we're going through this transformation. And I think that that is triggering a heightened interest by them or the groups of them in us. Because the fact is that our progress is not linear mm -hmm. any longer. It yeah. is absolutely parabolic. Yeah. yeah, exponential. So in the 100 years, 150 years, we've gone from a society of horses pulling wooden carts and muscle power to this magical world that we live in <laughs> of you know aviation and uh, high speed ground vehicles and electronics and uh, nuclear weapons and space space satellites and iPhones and the internet and the web and everything else it's an mind-boggling. We, we don't really step back and appreciate just the, the speed with which that's all happened, but it's like the snap of a finger in the long run. And so that puts us at a very different level of being able to engage with any non... And I just realized I didn't answer your question about earlier humans uh, 
interacting with us. I'm going to get back to that. But anyway, I think that would definitely trigger their interest in us if for no other reason than to ask themselves, are these humans going to be a nuisance to us in the near future or even, even a problem? It's a fair question for them to ask. We're, We're about to, I mean, you know, if you want to consider breakthroughs in the black budget classified world, we, we could be well beyond even where we're at right now, yeah. where we think officially. So yeah, we're interacting with them and they're going to need from their purposes, even from their own defensive point of view, perhaps. Yeah, figure these, out a way these to, monkeys are getting a little smart now. <laughs> to That's right. And to manage that. We're becoming very smart. We're developing advanced artificial uh, intelligent algorithms and mm-hmm. quantum computing and everything else that goes with it. So I think that would that would prompt them to having an expanded interest in us and maybe to want to control that for either good or, you know, maybe their own selfish reasons. Why wouldn't they? Uh, I want to finish up with this, but I, I do want to, I, I forgot to answer your question. Do I think some of the early encounters that people have had with seemingly advanced beings, whether gods or whatever, could that be the remnants of an ancient civilization? And I think maybe the speculation that I have had is that if we were subject to visitation many thousands of years ago, and I think we were, could those individuals that we've encountered simply be humans who were originally abducted thousands of years before? Right. right. And then, you know, seriously, and then brought in to live with this alien group, they would look like us, but they would be nothing like us. And they'd probably be genetically enhanced and have cognitive implants and who knows what else. And so they would be operating at a different level and would culturally have nothing to do with us. Um, But anyway, I'm bouncing around a bit. And just to finish up this other thought then, would they want to guide us in a positive way? Well, it depends on how you view positive. So the, the society that we're moving into now, which I've called the fourth stage of humanity, you know, the three other stages being hunting and gathering, uh, settled agriculture, and then industrial in- industry and science. Those are the three fundamental structures of human society as I see it. I think we're now moving into a fourth, which sometimes I call the transhumanist stage. Maybe we can call it the digital stage. I don't know. But it's fundamentally transforming us, and it's changing human psychology. It's changing human social organization, it seems to me. Some of the things we talked about earlier in this interview, you know, people not making eye contact and so forth, I think that's all part of it. Mm. I think that's part of the transformation that we're seeing into this something new. So you can you can see on one level that maybe what we're transforming into is becoming a lot more like them, like their society. Right, and I mean, that might not be a good thing for us, you know, how we want to live. But it might, it, no, it might not be, but it also might be, I mean, you have to ask the question, is it an inevitable Right path of an intelligent technological species to go and become basically a big beehive or an anthill, which when you talk to a lot of abductees, I've had many of these conversations, the, the takeaway that they will give you is that these beings, yeah, they're highly telepathic, not just with us, but with each other. And, and therefore, like they don't act on individual initiative, they're they're part of a collective consciousness. There's no privacy for those beings in that society, and maybe it's not even something that they want. Maybe that's the desire for that is bred out of them, for all we know. So they're they're like automatons, some of them, 
And then the leaders may not be like that, but you know, we don't really have a full understanding of them either. But the point is that we're becoming very possibly much more like they are in their mental and social structure. So if they're guiding us toward that, you can say, well, I don't know if, if putting it as good or bad is really the way that mm. we want to put that because it's a, a massive transformation at a structural level that is being pushed by like very, very big forces here. Um, so to answer your question, are they guiding us? Probably yes. I, if I were them, that's what I would want to do. Now, you're, I think implicitly you were asking something a little different, which is, are they guiding us to higher consciousness and to something better? And so l- let me try to address that because I, I think that that was kind yeah, that, that of what was you, part I, of my implication. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, and I, I respect that. So the question is, were they try, are they trying to do that? And I guess I would say maybe some of one or more than one group might be definitely doing that. There are certainly enough um, cases of individuals making this claim, stating that, yes, I had a download or I had communication, I had telepathic communication and on and on and on. You yourself have talked about this in your life. Mm-hmm. And I understand that. And I, I'm, not, I'm not here to say that didn't happen. I, I'm sure that it did. So the question is, if that is the case, I, I do wonder how effective is that strategy? Honestly, I, I don't know how effective it is when I look at the large swath of humanity. I do not see that level of higher consciousness right, becoming right. A, a very widespread thing. So it would be happening to very discrete cases to different people. But are there groups out there that are trying to do this? I'm not going to say no. I just don't know how widespread or effective that strategy is compared with creating a technological infrastructure by which human beings are being controlled, essentially in a form of digital totalitarianism, which is what we are seeing. Well, yeah, that definitely does seem to be the more visually uh, present <laughs> experience that we're going through uh, instead of a uh, evolution in consciousness. And, you know, I mean, there's so many people have said this and I've said it and I think even uh, Robert Bigelow said it in a recent interview that we're so out of out of whack, out of symbiosis with yes. our spiritual, <laughs> empathic, philosophical, you know, side and the technological innovation side. And it is a genuine concern. And, um, you know, I, I've said this before that i my only hope really now is that because of the inevitability of this technological progression that we're going through because we're never you know unless we're completely reset we're never going to as a species on a whole go back to sitting in tribal communities drinking ayahuasca and you know having a shaman tell us about spirit like that's not going to happen like that's not the projection we're going through we're definitely going to a technological paradigm and so my only hope is that through um you know this new this new exploration into quantum phenomenon and this new understanding of physics as we as we progress and learn that perhaps 
through a technological medium, we will unlock what we previously knew and disregarded through spirit mm -hmm. and consciousness. You know, perhaps our physicists and our quantum, you know, our quantum mechanics specialists will be able to go, hey, well, you know, once we've dug down deep enough into this, you know, into this matter, it turns out it's actually being formed by a coherent universal energy. And, oh, mm -hmm. that's what people have been calling God and et cetera for all this time. So, you know, perhaps we'll be able to unlock it through a technological medium. And I, and I hope so, because it, it kind of feels like that's the only way we're going. I like what you have to say there. I think that because when, when I look at where we're headed, all, all signs point to a loss of what we used to consider our humanity. Like mm -hmm. we're, we're losing that. But on another level, when you, if you want to get down to it, you could, you could speculate, you could hypothesize that maybe the most critical element of our humanity actually is what some might call our soul. Right. I believe in the soul. Um, I've been thinking about that actually a bit. In fact, I'd be happy to share some thoughts with you, but please. essentially the soul, which, which we could say is like that part of our inner consciousness that might be the highest and best of what we are, the part of us that knows everything. That I, I do believe like there's a part of our minds, of your mind and of my mind and everyone listening that actually knows everything of importance about them. Right. And the, the problem is that we're usually, we have mounds and mounds of garbage blocking the path between our waking consciousness and that, that most perfect part of ourselves. And not all of it is our fault. I mean, we have ordinary daily activities to do. We got to, you know, take out the trash. We've got to go make dinner. We've got to do all of these things that, that keep us of necessity in this world and doing day-to-day -day things. But, and there's also just the garbage of our, I say garbage, uh, but maybe um, I shouldn't use that word, but of our emotional and intellectual baggage that we have, mm. our ideas that in my opinion now, you know, are things that we formed are like the emotional responses we form to things. We, we do that as, as when we're children and we're not, as we get older, we're not even aware. We're not even aware of the yeah. things that drive us so that um, the farther down the road of life we go, the, the less in tune we tend to be of the, the core things about ourselves that actually make us do the things we do. So we, we lack self-knowledge. And, and, we, and we lack, in my opinion, uh, a direct access to understanding that. And the only way to understand it is through quiet, is honestly through genuine meditation. Mm -hmm. And that means, that can mean a walk in the woods, that can mean whatever, but you have to be alone. And you have to, you know, you go through this process of asking yourself questions about yourself to to get at the core truths of your life. That's a conversation with one's soul. That's what I believe that is. And so to me, that could be the most human thing about us. Right. That, that could be at least the most, the most preciously human yeah. thing about us. And it is something that I think our current civilization is divorcing us from in general, like absolutely, but if there's a way, even technologically, like you're saying, that can prompt us to re-engage with that part of our of ourselves 
then yes, I would, I would say that would be a really good thing to do. That if there's a way that we can employ technology to do that. My way of looking at it currently is we have the technology, it's our brains. And we actually do have the ability to go deep within ourselves and achieve higher consciousness all by ourselves. It doesn't mean that we can't get aided there even by ayahuasca or by technology. And so if, that, if those things can help, then I would say, yes, let's, let's use those methods. I can't believe we've been talking for almost an hour already. I've got so many more notes. I know. I'm happy to go as long. We haven't even touched UFOs, really. I but, know. I've got so uh, this, many. I've been enjoying things. this. I, no, me too, Richard. I'm really, really, and I love that <laughs> response you gave. I really appreciate it. And I, I, I resonate with that. Um, I'll tell you what, to, to segue into UFOs again, mm-hmm. um, some people would disagree with me, but in my mind, we have come a long way in the past few years. You know, so much remains unanswered, so much remains classified. And I think that it will probably remain that way for quite some time. But I think what's most important about the shift that's occurred in this subject since around about 2017 is the ability for people to actually discuss this subject outside of the UFO community. I mean, a per, you know, a personal example of this for myself would be the change in opinion within my own family, especially in regards to close family, like my dad, my mom, my stepdad, and, and even my grandparents, uh, all of which over the past few months have made a habit of paying attention to my work. And it's really inspiring for me because, you know, they're all open-minded people, but they're not researchers of this field of interest. You know, it, it never figured into their lives before I started doing Project Unity. And, you know, the talking points that I've been able to utilize since 2017, the US government's more public response to this issue has provided um, like a template that can be used to educate people outside of the community on, uh, you know, at at least the basic facts that UFOs absolutely exist and and the government's extremely Mm -hmm. interested in this. And, you know, this gives me a real sense of hope. I mean, you you have talked about the red line of disclosure, um, you know, that you have concerns that this might all fizzle out. But I honestly feel that we're gaining momentum, even if it's more gradual than what we might want it to be. And it does come back, in my opinion, to the oversaturation of data within the UFO community, because for those of us who are embedded into this subject, we tend to forget just how little people in the general population understand about this issue. And and so even a breadcrumb can seem like an entire meal to someone who is not an active researcher. And, you know, I do think that people on a whole need to be eased into this conversation because throwing people in the deep end prematurely could be extremely damaging. I mean, I don't know. What are your thoughts on, on that? Yes, I, I agree with actually every single thing you just said there. And I'm very encouraged by the fact that your family has uh, showed an interest in your so work. So am I. I think that's fantastic. And also, I guess, more generally, just in the reality of the UFO phenomenon. It's not a big joke anymore. So I'm, I'm really glad to hear that. And I think that's probably been... Um, you know, translated to a lot of families around the world. I, th- I think that's true. Like since 2017, since the New York Times, mm-hmm. their double whammy of coverage on uh, December uh, 16th of 2017, the world's been in a bit, a bit of a different conversation. It's really true. Like we're allowed in our corporate controlled media now even to talk about UFOs. That's amazing because that wasn't the case before. Not really, not really at all. So now it is. And in fact, uh, to support your point that we still may be looking at a snowballing effect, 
the war zone just a couple of days ago came out with a very interesting piece mm-hmm. of journalism on the uh, encounters of multiple U.S. Navy vessels in July of 2019. This is only two summers ago. Uh, on at least four different nights by objects they're calling drones, but these these are highly advanced objects that engaged in incredibly provocative ways with the United States Navy, including during the period uh, when the Navy was investigating what was actually going on in the first couple of nights and these objects came back. It's quite extraordinary. Now this, you know, maybe this is a, a rogue black budget contractor that's responsible for it. We don't really know, but if that were the case, that would be interesting as well. Yeah, definitely. But the, but the fact is that these objects actually exhibit all the classic characteristics that UFOs have had in the past in terms of provocatively engaging in uh, areas where they're not supposed to be, you know, during naval exercises, restricted airspace, um, and also being completely impervious to interception or identification um, repeatedly and, and showing a lot of very advanced maneuverability as well. So all of that makes them actually very congruent with earlier UFO sightings that we've had for years and years. But um, to the other point about the red line of disclosure, what I call the red line of disclosure is the red line of acknowledging crash retrievals. Mm -hmm. Because I think, you know, that's really the line that that's the, the true line. And where we're at right now, we, we've come a long way since 2017. It's true. So now we're at a point in our <clears throat> official discourse where the, the US military is now openly admitting that there are UFOs or UAPs, they wanna call them, whatever. In other words, they're admitting that there are objects that have <clears throat> engaged with their vessels and their naval aircraft that they don't know how to identify that have performance cap- capabilities that are vastly beyond anything we know how to explain. And that's a UFO. So now what they're not saying is it's aliens. They're not saying anything. In fact, they're not saying it's Russian. They're not saying it's Chinese. Certainly I think Russian and Chinese origins is, is not a, really a viable. I think that's a ludicrous suggestion, frankly. Uh, but they put that out there as like, well, maybe you never know. Or, black budget US tech. And even if that is the case, that opens up a, a lot of questions that are uncomfortable questions. The science, the, what is the science of the Tic Tac UFO, which in 2004 accelerated from hovering to more than 10,000 miles per hour, like instantly. We don't know how to do that. Not We have not a clue. So there's science in that that is still off the charts in terms of being able to explain. But the real red line is, admitting that they've got artifacts that they have acquired from these UFOs that are highly advanced. And we have a kind of unofficial acknowledgement of that through like the, the so-called metamaterial and, and other pieces, but there's no official acknowledgement of it. And to me, that's the key because mm. right now they're still able to play this little fiction of saying, well, we don't know what they are. Right. Right. That's the, that's the new position of the cover-up, frankly. Mm-hmm. The old position of the cover-up was there's no such thing. Well, they, we've gotten to a point where that's not a viable position any longer. That's not a hill they're going to die on anymore. It, it, the whole world conversation is beyond that. So you have now an admission. They've moved just a little bit downfield, and then they're, they're saying, 
well, yeah, there is something there, but we don't know what it is. And that still allows them to avoid claims of cover-up. And that's, that's really the key. It's the crash retrieval slash cover-up element that is the red line. So even in the War Zone's latest article, which it, it's otherwise a very fine article, but of course, in none of their articles and, and none of any of the corporate, the truly corporate controlled media articles, is there even a hint that there's been a cover-up of this ever? Like they just don't go there. And I think because if they were to admit that in uh, our environment of today's society, where all sorts of so-called conspiracy theories are deplatformed and pushed to the fringe and just pushed right out of public discussion, that this is the this is the mother of all conspiracy theories. We're talking about the UFO conspiracy. To acknowledge that would be inopportune, putting it mildly. So I don't. I just do not foresee a willing acknowledgement of a UFO cover-up. And so that's why crash retrievals is the red line. So I do. I think what we are going to see as the years go by is more encounters will probably be known, but we're, we're still going to be, officially speaking anyway, at the scratching our head level of thinking, gee, what are these things? We don't know what they are. And without any real of the serious, I think, deeper questions being asked of any of these encounters, which they're still not really being asked. So, yeah, I mean, the, the ball is moving down the field. Absolutely. And I agree with you. And, <clears throat> and um, this last latest piece of journalism, and I'm sure there'll be others that are, will come out even after we do this interview. But the question really for me is, are we simply in a new version of a cover-up in which sightings are now being acknowledged by the United States military, even some extraordinary sightings, but without, I mean, we just have such a compliant media that they're just not, they're not asking questions. I've had a theory for many years that I've talked about this a lot, um, that, you know, we might be moving toward a form of uh, disclosure that is just so totally controlled and that would be possible if, let's call them the global establishment elites, get to a point where they're able to control all global media, like really sufficiently. As I was saying this more than 10 years ago, so the legacy media was already you know, completely controlled, but social media and the internet was not completely controlled at that time, back in 2010, 2011. And so I thought, well, if they get to a point where they're able to control pretty much all of it or enough of it, that they are able to eliminate voices that they don't want to be heard, then we might see a, a kind of disclosure rollout that is safe for them, that they can then, that would allow them to control the narrative to a maximum extent. And, and it would be attractive for some kind of dis disclosure eventually to come out, just because I think people realize like it's, there's obviously a phenomenon here. And, and to keep lying and denying it flat out year after year is just, that's not going to work forever. So you've got to have a new tactic. And I think that, I think we're looking at that new tactic now. Now, maybe they're just playing a defensive game here. And, you know, those of us researchers who are on the offense, we might say, maybe we've got them on the, on the run. And, and it's possible that enough 
of a quantity of really good sightings come out that people actually get to a critical mass and they start saying, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Right. What is, what's actually happening? And that's possible. Well, it's, it's, possible. it's like what you've just kind of brought up about the whole, uh, you know, the, the, the mainstream ideas that are coming out. Is it Russian? Is it the Chinese technology? And, you know, I share your thoughts on how this is a ridiculous notion when you examine the uh, the wide spectrum of available data for ufos that even predate mm -hmm. humans ability to create aerial platforms but but once right. again i have to i have to fall back on the fact that most people are incredibly uninformed on these issues and so i do think that what we're seeing is a gradual rollout of information and you have to start with basic questions and again like you i agree these basic questions have been asked and and in some cases answered via the decades of ufo research but the majority of people are unaware of the decades of ufo research and and so for the general population starting the conversation off with more prosaic explanations like saying oh it, you know it could be a foreign adversary it's probably maybe the best way to begin the conversation and and then right. eventually you know i would i would imagine that the plan would be to to prove it's not a foreign adversary but i i, I really do think that what we as a UFO community are witnessing when it comes to elements of the public discussion that almost seem embarrassing to us due to our depth of, of research knowledge are in fact, you know, maybe necessary checkpoints to go through for the public. And, uh, you know, it's annoying, but I think it's probably a necessary path for governments to take and the only one that they will take. That's probably true. I have a few things I want to say to this. Absolutely. Um, but yes, it's probably true. When you think about how long it has taken UFO researchers to mm -hmm. get to where we are today, you know, back in 1950, they had a very different idea about what was happening than what we do today. And it and it's taken generations of, of a, a very advanced thinking and a lot of arguments within the UFO field for us to get to what I believe is a much more complete and I'm going to say sophisticated understanding of what's happening today. So. It's taken 70 years for engaged UFO researchers mm -hmm. to get there. So you are, I think, exactly right when you look at the difficulties of educating the general public on this. This is, this is not a simple subject. There is a steep learning curve to this subject of UFOs. I think outsiders don't really understand that. And I'm talking about very smart outsiders like people in the academic world. Yeah, absolutely. They, they have no idea. They have no clue about how deep and how difficult this subject actually is and how, but how it actually repays a lot of hard work as well. But here's something else that I, I wanna just put out here. So I think, I think you're probably right in saying that if there's a public education plan going on, it's gotta be done by degrees. And this is something that, you know, when I wrote after disclosure 10 to 11 years ago now, I wasn't foreseeing that. I was foreseeing disclosure happening accidentally by some kind of crisis that just caused like poof, the whole thing to come out all at once and you know everything flying in every direction. And we're not we're not seeing that. We're seeing something that's very controlled and and maybe necessary, but the problem with that as I see it is this, which is that by the time that education will be complete or at least better than it is today that could be several decades or generations right, even right. from now and by which time we were talking earlier about how young people are now being raised well in 20 30 years they may be having cognitive implants where they're just wired in directly to the the cloud or to the web
It's entirely possible. If not, if not literally physically with a little, you know, Elon Musk style implant in the brain, then maybe by some other means that I can't even think about. But there's going to be a much greater level of control exerted by centralized, probably centralized intelligent algorithms, frankly, into the lives of ordinary people. And it'll go both ways. Like our thoughts will go out there and their thoughts or commands maybe will be coming toward us for manipulation. And so in that world, where an entire new generation will be raised in this manner, I have to ask myself, what is the cognitive and critical thinking skills that, that people are going to have in another generation? I personally, and I'm gonna sound like an old man here, but I personally <laughs> think that, that a, the critical thinking overall has declined, not, not fully, I mean, obviously you are a, a shining example of the opposite of what I'm oh, looking you. at as a trend. And there are other examples. There are others, lot, yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of brilliant young people out there who really are amazing, and I, I'm blown away by them. But I also think that we're, there, there's a larger number who are, let's just say, entrained by a, a centralized technological system. Yeah, plugged into the matrix. That's right. So by the time... By the time uh, an education program on UFOs might be ready, we're going to be looking at a world in which more and more people are just, like, what, what good will it do? They're going to be completely plugged in and controlled by a, what, what I would see as a, a technological digital totalitarian system. I mean, that's, that's a real possibility because that, that's the world I think we are moving into. Now, um, how, how do you develop critical thinking skills? For example, when, you know, as a six and seven and eight year old kid, you're trained to ask Siri or ask Google Echo answers to all of your questions where they are designed to give you one authoritative answer to any given question you ask. The world doesn't work like that. The world is, you know, when anyone does research, you are used to seeing shades of gray. There's different multiple sides to all kinds of arguments. And I, uh, I read an interview or at least a snippet of an interview with Eric Schmidt who used to be Google's CEO and his explicit point was that we're designing Echo to give one authoritative answer to any of the questions yeah. people ask. And so you're, you're training an entire generation away from actual research and critical thinking skills. Well, no, I, I would agree with, I would agree with um, your concerns about the rate of education. And, uh, you know, I, I, to be honest, I fall back on, on the fact that as informed citizens, as, as researchers and historians like yourself, we have an obligation to assist in this effort in a way that streamlines the process rather than putting up barriers or splitting yes, into different yes, camps, yes. you know, yes. simply because it's not playing out the way that we personally hoped for. What matters to me, at least, is a conversation is happening and it's happening at higher and higher levels and it's perme permeating out to a wider audience every year. And, and this does give me hope because the more that people in the general public become informed, the more likely it is that they will want to research this issue themselves. And this comes back once again to my reasoning behind my respect and appreciation for someone like yourself, Richard, because you have the ability to present historical and modern information in a way that's palatable to people who are now beginning to dip their toes into this subject for the very first time. You know, you're a far sight from the 
corny CGI flying saucer intros and like, welcome to the Richard Dolan space cast. Like you're nothing like that. You know, you right, people, right. people are very, very much able to listen to you from outside of the community and, and see a measured sensible approach. And so I think that, um, you know, when it comes to the educational rift, some of us do have a responsibility to try and, and, and close that rift because if the government yes. won't do it, then we're going to have yes. to do it. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for your very kind words. I, I appreciate that coming from you very much. Yeah, you're welcome. And this is going to be my opportunity to agree fully with your optimism because I do <laughs> believe, I know, right? I've been <laughs> such a, I've been Captain Bringdown for this entire interview. So far. <laughs> no, you haven't. <laughs> yes, I think so. But, but I, I do think uh, you're, you are exactly right with understanding the let's say obligation or at least responsibility for those of us who can communicate information about this and to do it effectively to a broader public, like we, those people are needed and we need more and more of them. And that is an opportunity. You know, I've often heard it said in these times of ours, these, this upside down world now that we're living in, that they only need propaganda against us because they haven't won the battle yet. Hmm. And that's true. So the battle, the battle for our future, for our freedom, for the achievement of the, that which is highest and best in ourselves is not over yet. So that good things as well as bad things can happen. There are good things that can happen. And I do believe there, there will remain areas in which free discourse will probably continue in our world for a long, long time. Hopefully, I think, I don't think it's all going to go away. So there, there's going to remain pockets and maybe large, large amounts of free discourse that will happen in our world. And one thing that I've, I've learned, this is a really appropriate place to insert this into our interview here, is that most people have they they're not aware of this but they have a deep hunger for truth mm. they they want it because they know in their daily lives they're actually they're just not getting it they know that there are things about this world that they don't understand they don't they don't grasp but they know that's on some level the official the official reality that they're being spoon-fed is is filled with lies and so when they hear people like yourself or on a good day like like me or other many other people out there when they hear someone else speaking a powerful truth what they discover is that they never realized how hungry they were for mm -hmm. it. yeah and you know i've had thousands of conversations with people not just in groups but one on one and i can always see that light bulb going on like it happens, it's like a moment where you're talking with someone and you're explaining things and you, you see their eyes and you see them thinking, it's like this, my God, moment that they're having. Um, and they want more, they want more. So that's the thing we've got going for us. And that's what the world, people are always going to hunger for authenticity, for authentic truths. And when they find someone at least trying, or when they find something that they perceive is trying to give them that, they will want more. And that is the greatest strength that we can probably bring to the table is authenticity, mm -hmm. reflection, and you know, not showboating and, and that type of thing, but 
Now, the, the, the only problem with that is that a lot of people are just not in that headspace and they're, they're very easily manipulated. And, and we're creating new and new generations that I, in my opinion, are more and more easily manipulated. Maybe, maybe they're not more easily manipulated than people in the past. Maybe, maybe people are the same, but the means of manipulating them have improved. Maybe that's yeah, all. I think is. that's probably a, a, a good yeah. way to see that. Right. Yeah. But anyway, so that's a problem. So there's opportunities uh, to spread the word, you know, spread the good news, as people would say, <laughs> 2,000 years ago, uh, to those people who are willing to listen. Yes, I think that's absolutely. Well, but, you know, there's, there's going to be a lot of people who just, they're not, they're not going to get it because I don't think they, their lives, they're just, I just think they're not going to get it. They're not going to go there. Well, I, you know, I, I agree with you, and I, but I do come back to the consciousness side of this. I think that we're, we're, we're far too dismissive of what could quite honestly be the keystone of this entire issue. I mean, you see it all around the world, a lack of empathy, a lack of respect for nature. You know, we don't operate in a, in a symbiotic fashion, and we are becoming more and more technologically driven. And I think a, a resurgence of an appreciation of the spirit of, of humanity, you know, the connection to nature and, and the cosmos, the energy of love is truly what we need to be focusing on now more than ever. You know, when we look at these gigantic structures like big tech conglomerates and powerful body politics and, and corruption across the board, there is there is no one thing that we as an individual can do to topple all of these structures in a single day. I think the only thing that you can do that is productive and has the potential to go from a, like a micro action to a macro effect is to bring love into this world, to be a positive voice, you know, to encourage okay, well, people to think for themselves. I, I don't want to, I hate being dissonant <laughs> pop with my your balloon. ideas here. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't like to do that, but I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to offer a different opinion on this. So I might suggest that that's exactly what we are seeing being imposed upon us by a technological technocratic elite is an ideology of, we can say an ideology of love, or to say it this way, an ideology of anti-hate, uh, an ideology of inclusiveness. Like this is all that we hear every single day. And it's being, being driven in by a, essentially the, the Davos crowd, the World Economic Forum. And oh, well, I'm not a fan of them. <laughs> well, but, but that, I mean, when you really get down to it, that is precisely the rhetoric that they are using. Now, that's not the reality of what they're doing. The reality of what they're doing is siphoning more wealth out of, out of poor people and, uh, and, and creating an international technological political revolution and a social revolution. I mean, that's literally what they're doing. But the revolution that they're trying to create is one in which uh, is, is accelerating what I keep calling this fourth stage of humanity, this new technocratic anthill that we're I think I see us all moving into. Now, the way to do that ideologically is you, you do create an ideology of love and non-aggression. Like you have to. So you create this, uh, you impose, let's say, an ideology by which you're not allowed to have hateful thoughts. You're not allowed to have these this, this type of dissonant thinking. Right, yeah, like a highly and, politicized, agendized version of love. Yes, but... but <laughs> I, I agree with you, but, but the fact is that the, you know, if you hear them describe it, they are, they're imposing an ideology based on humanity is all one thing, you know, mm. no borders, no, uh, right. That's a very important thing that they want to talk about. And then, and, and no hate speech, no hate thinking. 
what, or what they define as hate speech, which is a concept that I think has, is not a legitimate concept. I personally do not think that there should no, be hate speech laws whatsoever. Uh, and I think people should be allowed I to mean, disagree and argue and even get pissed off oh, yeah. and call each other names. Um, Love should never so, be restrictive, right? It should be liberating. Yes. So, so, but my point simply is, you know, I'd have to look very carefully at what I would say is a, a philosophy of love. Mm. If a philosophy of love is being imposed by the folks at Davos, I'm going to say thanks, but no Pro thanks. Probably I'll, not I'll that loving. Yeah, yeah, I'll pass on that one. <laughs> but, it, but, but, but I just want to point out, like their rhetoric is a rhetoric. Essentially, it's a rhetoric of love. Yeah, of community and togetherness. And no, I absolutely, right. I know exactly what you mean. And it's, but it's a contortion, isn't it? It's a twisting of the uh, of the way of, of the, the way things are. Well, the real question might be then: Can we have? To what extent do you have a philosophy of love in human society where where people are economic animals as well mm, as spiritual mm. animals where we we do have to make a living through uh, growing food selling food developing uh, you know market channels to to distribute and all of these things that we're we're competing against each other in the marketplace because it is a fact i would say that the competition economic competition is what breeds innovation and everything that we're living in this world like the fact that i'm able to speak to you across the atlantic ocean right now right. is virtue of the fact that we live in a society in which individuals have been liberated to innovate and that means to compete like that's just the reality and so when you're competing and you're innovating there is conflict there's always going to be conflict against other people operating different technologies and different market solutions. And you're going to get angry with each other. And, and that can include nations or groups of people that are going to oppose each other. And, and so there's going, there's always going to be conflict. And so I think for us to have a, a, an idea that human beings are somehow going to have this ability to avoid conflict. I, I, I personally consider that, I <laughs> hope I'm not offending anyone here or you, but I, I consider that dangerous utopianism. No, I would agree. I would agree. Yeah. Yeah. So, so avoiding conflict isn't really what we want. Um, expanding our realm of genuine love is important. And I guess for me that I answer that personally, not with a love for humanity, but a love for actual people in my life. Mm. And to open myself to those individuals, because I don't know how much love I've got for more than 7 billion people in this world. No, I and, and I don't that, know how yeah. valid that love would actually Absolutely. be and how meaningful it actually is. You know, I've, I have a, a good friend who says, look, you know, your prayer is going a thousand miles away, do matter. And I'm like, <laughs> this is where um, my longstanding, tough talking New York uh, ancestors come <laughs> into play here. It's like, uh, really? <laughs> you really think that, buddy? But I mean, I get where he's coming from, but, but also, on another level, like my generalized love for humanity, let's say, I don't really think counts for a whole lot, to be perfectly honest. The love that I have for the people that I interact with in my life, or if not love, then compassion and genuine empathy, that's what, that's the, the realm that I'm always seeking to expand in my life. And um, so I agree, like I think we, you know, expanding a our genuine insight into ourselves through meditation and and higher consciousness as we understand what that means yes we we need we desperately need that
We desperately need that because our society does everything possible to take us away from that through every type of distraction. And they're, they're better and better and better at it. We've come a long way since Edward Bernays writing 100 years ago, you know, the nephew of Sigmund Freud who basically invented the field of public relations. Bernays was an evil genius and we've gone light years beyond that in our world of today in terms of manipulation. So everything's taking us away from a spiritual side. And, and we're now, you know, I was saying a little while ago, the Davos crowd is trying to impose a philosophy of love, but they're actually, you could look at it another way. They're imposing uh, massive social divisiveness as well, um, which I think they are doing, but they're doing that as a weapon to, you know, the, the love is an ideology and the divisiveness is a tool by which they, they are getting their way and they are rapidly creating a, a, a global revolution. So, but anyway, yes, I, I agree with you to some extent about love, but I, I guess I look at it a little, I look at it in my own way. I look at it as a more personal thing. And I do no, believe it's very I, important. I absolutely respect and appreciate that. And also would echo it because I think all of us would agree that the, the localized radius of love is what's most important to us as, as, as individuals, you know, our friends, our family, the, those of us that are, you know, those that are closest it's to us. It's how we were designed as human how, beings. How we're designed as human beings, exactly. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you know, I think that the ability to speak to a lot of people, which, you know, we have via the internet, yes. which, you know, maybe we're getting more and more restrictive as time goes on. But whilst we have it, we do have a medium that we can, you know, present yes. hopeful messages and, and, and try and maintain a level of positivity. And I do think that that's important because, you know, as we're going into this time period, which is becoming more restrictive, I think that, uh, you know, whilst we have the voice, we should use it. Well, what we all need is, is something important to believe in. So for thousands of years, for almost our entire, all of our recorded history, what people believed in were a, a few very basic things. They believed in their God or gods, like that was number one. They believed in their society and they probably believed in their community and, and you know their family and things like that. And that was a consistent thing throughout all of human history. I don't think there's any societies that were exceptions to that. Uh, we're in a situation now where all of those things that I mentioned are receding or under, under severe attack, frankly. And so what people don't have is they, or they often don't know what to believe in. This, this is actually why we're, we're looking at uh, the intense, almost religious-like ideology of a lot of folks these days. Um, you know, politics has become a kind of religious mm. uh, avocation for many people, especially a lot of young people, I just have to say. Um, and it's because there's this instinct. We all have this instinct for belonging to something bigger than ourselves and believing in something greater than ourselves. And so if you can't do it through um, a spiritual practice, then pe some people will do it through a political activism and things like that. Um, where was I going here? Um, Oh, crap. I can't remember what I was trying to say here. Uh, oh, oh, yes, yes, yes. So what you and I are doing and what those of us who, you know, are speaking to the public about important issues, if we do it right, then we do have the ability to provide 
you can call it hope. Yes. You, you know, something, something to latch onto, something to believe in, even if it's just a, a person out there who is demonstrating that they haven't gone insane in this insane world. Yeah, exactly. Uh, even if it's, if it's someone who's showing that, yes, you can have compassion and you can see multiple sides of an issue in today's insane world, like providing an example, that's important. And, and, and it can provide hope something to believe in to the extent that people can say, you know what, I, I want to bring that into my life. So there's always, it is always worthwhile and not just for you and me, but for anyone listening, like we're all part of this to be that, you know, they used to talk about pay it forward, right? Don't pay it back, pay it mm-hmm. forward. And, and it's the same thing here. Everyone has the ability to be that person who makes things better not worse. It makes things better, not worse. And you make them better by being someone who can be, you know, responsible during difficult times, who can not always engage in things selfishly thinking for yourself, but actually really try to make things better for everyone around you. That's important. And we don't always succeed at that, but that's something that we can all try for. And to set an example of how how to be in in a really difficult era, a really yeah. trying and often scary era. For me, where I'm at these days is, uh, I often tell myself this, like I, I have to be a realist. I, I don't wanna delude myself. I, and by that, I simply mean, I have to, for my own satisfaction, I've got to look at the problems that I believe are important and I have to just see them. I can't pretend that they're not there. Yeah, yeah. So there's there are serious problems, some of which may not have solutions, some of which may, but even for the ones that don't have optimal solutions, it doesn't mean that things are hopeless. There are always things that we can do to make things better. And I firmly believe that. I firmly like there's always there's always a need for good people to act in ways that are positive and make things better, not worse. With, with also though, <laughs> uh, recognizing our own limitations and recognizing we're not omniscient, we're not omniscient and we, we don't know how to run someone else's life better than they do because there's a lot of that going around these days and I mm. definitely oppose that. So I don't like evangelists of any sort. I don't like pontificators. I don't like sanctimonious people at all and I don't like utopians. So I like um, people who can gently show a path forward. Yes. Yes. People who are willing to be gurus or to tell you how it's going to be. No, thanks. I'll check out of that one. <laughs> well, no, I agree with that completely. Yeah. I've, Richard, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Is there anything you wanted to add into this before we wrap up? Because we, we, we've literally gone over an hour and a half now in like what feels like the blink of an eye. I feel like we haven't even gotten started. I know. Well, we're going to have to do a round two at some point, my friend. You know, I would, I would be happy to actually, I would be happy to come back and do, um, because there's a lot of opportunities for some deep dives here. Definitely. um, We talked a little bit about UFOs, but you know what? We talked a lot about life in the state of Mm -hmm. society. And I feel that that was very valuable. And, um, I, I just want to say on a personal level that I, I really enjoy, uh, having a back and forth with you. I think that you, have a really 
uh, you have a gift for bringing uh, thoughtful, you know, relatively high level things out of me, um, <laughs> then, then, I mean, I'm different in, with different interviewers, but I really, really like the way that you do this and the tone and, uh, and I know that you do this with your other guests and, uh, there always, always a, is a good result. So I'm just glad you got me on. I don't know what else to add here. There's always more to say, but I do think that we've probably said a lot. Well, yeah, let, um, thank you so much for, for the kind words there. I really do appreciate it. I love being able to extract little unique things out of people such as yourself because, you know, we're so used to hearing uh, like the, you know, the UFO stuff. And it's just nice to have like a, I don't know, like a, a calmer and more broad conversation, which I think, yes. like you said, we've just had. So, I mean, let, let me just finish it off by saying thank you, you know, once again for taking this time to speak with me. It's, it's been enlightening. It's been thoroughly enjoyable to get your thoughts on all these different issues and topics. And, and I hope to see you continue to fight the good fight for many years to come, sir. Thank you so much, Jay. And so do I. And I hope the exact same for you. <laughs>